0: Welcome back to the Lawali Life Podcast. I'm your host, Alice Law, and this podcast is a mixture of conversations with amazing leaders in their fields, talking about the greatest stresses and losses and challenges they've had to overcome, and how they came back from them, with tips and inspiration from how you can come back through yours. I talk mainly about stress and loss in this podcast and focus largely on stress because it's a fate we all share to go through stress and to experience loss. So I want to bring you amazing speakers from around the world to share with you their inspiring stories to make you realize that we can all come through our own and there are little tiny things we can do every day to keep us at our best. In today's episode, I'm joined by nutritionist Sophie and dietitian Barry, the combination of the girls from the Forking Wellness podcast and authors of the Forking Wellness book. Sophie and Barry look at nutrition and diets and eating from a totally different angle that's so much more manageable and healthy for us. Instead of looking at the restrictive diets and the fads that come and go, they look at how to actually create a balanced lifestyle where you don't have to say no to the things you love and look at things like intuitive eating and really listening to your body. It was a really interesting conversation, I've never had a nutritionist on the podcast so I hope you enjoy listening to this side of health and all the many insights they shared. Let me know if you enjoy the episode, I'd love to hear from you and I hope you enjoy Well, I'm so excited to have Barry and Sophie today. Guys, you're the first um, nutritionist who've actually come on the podcast, so I've been super excited to talk to you all things nutrition and and more, so thank you. You're welcome. We're happy to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having us.
0: So, I mean, first of all, how did you guys, you know, start to be in this field and how did you come together to work together on Forking Wellness and things? Because that must have been meeting by chance or coincidence. How did that all happen for you guys?
2: Uh, sorry, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. So I moved to the UK in 2016 to do my, I was already a registered dietitian, uh, qualified back in America. And I moved here to complete my master's at UCL in eating disorders and clinical nutrition. And Sophie was also doing that course. Um, So we met on our master's program. And I think we just had very similar views on nutrition and the nutrition space. And we kind of just stayed really good friends and always just found our conversations around health and nutrition to be educational, lighthearted. I mean, we were always giggling like about (laughs) everything. Um, And then Sophie said one day we should put a microphone to this. Like we should just record and see what people think. And here we are, you know, almost a year and a half later.
1: (laughs) I feel like our friendship was like one of the most effortless things ever. Like it was so strange how we just became friends so easily. Like Barry said, like after our masters, we just very, very naturally stayed in touch. There was like no effort needed. Um, But my background is actually in psychology. And then so like kind of flipped to Barry. She did dietetics first, I did psychology and then she wanted to explore my more psychology and then I went into nutrition more. Um, so I think that's why we crossed over so much as well because we had we're, we're so different, but we're so the same at the same time. It's really strange. Um, but yeah, like like she said, we were constantly just having these open conversations because sometimes the, the nutrition industry comes across very black and white. And Barry and I were really determined to find and present this grey area, um, yeah. which is hopefully what Falking Wellness does.
2: Yes, yeah. I mean, I'd
0: love to talk to you guys about that, the grey area, because I find it so fascinating just looking at how you say eating intuitively, for starters, because intuition, as you guys know, for me, is such a big part of my life in general, and a lot of people listening love all that sort of thing. And so intuitive eating, how does that exactly work as a starting point?
1: So intuitive eating is a non-diet approach to nutrition, um, which sounds really scary for people who have been dieting a lot of their life. And a lot of people have. I actually haven't really met many people who haven't dabbled in the world of dieting. Um, So intuitive eating is kind of, again, me and Barry have this conversation all the time. It's kind of just normal eating, but we've had to give it a label because... So many people were so far from what they knew because when we are born, we are all intuitive eaters, you know, when our mothers are feeding us, we kind of pull away from the bottle or the breast when we're full and we kind of give you signals that we want to latch on when we're hungry. Um, and then as we start to grow up and we're exposed to external messages and social media and conversations around diet, um, we start to lose that trust in our body that we originally were born with um hence embarking on different diets yo-yo dieting starting to struggle with our weight getting confused with what's healthy and what's not and that really takes us away from our own relationship with food and we start relying on other people to tell us what's right or what's wrong and what's healthy and what's unhealthy um so intuitive eating really kind of brings you back to start trusting your own body again realizing that you know what what healthy means to Barry isn't the same what healthy means to me yeah,
2: yeah. exactly and I think there's also an added layer, like even if you didn't have a history of like chronic dieting, we are like always bombarded with health information, mm-hmm. whether it's from the media or whether it's from like, and it could be really well-intentioned like from a doctor or a health professional um, we are always told maybe this is healthier or you should eat this or you should eat less of that. So there's all of this noise and it really kind of, you know, affects the way we perceive food and the choices that we make. And sometimes we make choices not based on what we want, but based on what we think we should be having. Or, you know, the amount of times that I hear people say like, I don't even like kale. And it's like, well, (laughs) don't eat it then. Um, But, you know, there's this weird message somewhere in the ether that kale, it has all these magical properties and they need to blend it into a juice. And we just know that's not true. So sometimes it doesn't even come out of like the chronic dieting. Um, but just the, the vast amount of nutrition information that is like absolutely everywhere. And it's really confusing. Like it, it's overwhelming. I totally
0: agree with that because I am talking about like diets and things. I was one of those very lucky people annoyingly (laughs) like mom's got incredible metabolism it was like genetically really easy and I'd never been someone who put on weight until finally after my dad died instead of losing weight like I did before from other stressful situations I gained it and I was really like I don't know where to start because it had never been in my like you know orbit and I really was just bombarded with like okay what is the right thing to do there's so many fads like you say a like kale like is this a choice and I had to speak to a friend who's very very you know into all that to kind of just help me just be like no you just need to just like be healthy like chill be kind to yourself and that kind of thing but I mean I think it is so overwhelming for people so how do you guys sort of underwhelm people with the way you work
2: so
1: do you want to start yeah um So basically, I mean, if you read the Forking Wellness book, it's, I mean, it's mapped out in a much better um, and detailed way. But basically, instead of where people tend to go wrong is let's just take your scenario, if you felt like you gained more weight than you should have been carrying, you felt uncomfortable, unhealthy, someone might then think like you may have done, okay, you know, this needs to, I need to backtrack a little bit here and go on a diet. So you embark on this diet with good intentions um, (laughs) and then all of a sudden you're kind of eating, let's say 1500 calories a day. Let's say you've got to your weight loss goal, but then you're like, well, now what? You know, I've just been restricting for X amount of weeks or months or years and that's not sustainable. I can't maintain that way of eating. So what now? And that's that's always where I wanted to help people because that's always where the problems lie. And particularly when I work with clients, they that's the problem they have. It's that plateau and not knowing because, you know, you've got two options. You either go back to how you were eating before and you put all the weight back on, which there's so much research to suggest that that's the case. And you often put on more weight because of the damage you've done to your metabolism, or you have to continue to restrict in order to stay that weight, because there's something called a set point that we all have, which again, we go into more detail in, in the book, and we all have this kind of place where we sit comfortably, where we can eat flexibly and live optimally and, you know, look after our well-being. And some people are heavier than they'd like to be genetically. Some people are, um, you know, smaller than they'd like to be genetically, but that's the point. We're all kind of given a different body. If all three of us ate the same thing and exercised in the same way, there's no way we would ever look the same. And that's something people really tend to struggle with, um, in terms of getting their head round. So that's kind of the foundation of it. And then Barry and I obviously go to the next level in the book in terms of nutrition. And if you just take that kind of weight loss goal or weight goal, weight, whatever it is out of your head, then you can actually think, okay, what does my body actually need want, and thrive off of when you're being ruled by that kind of weight loss goal, it genuinely always ends in disaster and you're never going to have a healthy relationship with food, in my opinion, anyway. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I I completely agree. It was so well said. And that when you're striving to just lower the number, you often don't consider how you get there because your, your goals are so short term in the sense Mm -hmm. that, you know, you just want this immediate number to drop. And then what happens when it does, you have no long-term goals or no long-term habits to keep you really sustained Um, and what the diet industry tends to tell us is cut this out, cut this out, and it becomes very reductionist. And all of a sudden you're left with like a few things that you feel safe doing, but you know, that's not sustainable. You can't just keep doing X, Y, Z for the rest of your life because you need to be able to adapt to certain situations. You can't control everything in your life. So when things are thrown into the spanner, that's when people start to get anxious and, they don't have the coping mechanisms because their diet didn't provide it for them. So what we try to explain in the Forking Wellness book and all throughout our podcast is like, what things can we add to your mm-hmm. life instead of always thinking I need to eat less of this? Well, okay, but you know, what are you what do you like that's already quite nutritious? Like, what can we add more into your life um, instead of always thinking about? what we can take away, it kind of creates a negative mindset. It reinforces that negative relationship with food. And we like to flip it on, on its head and just show you that, you know, nutrition is amazing. Food is delicious. It's never something that you should be scared of or shy away from, but you know, let's use it to enhance our lives. And I think that when you have that mental shift, you know, it's so empowering. And then you, you're able to kind of trust yourself because you're not guided by the things that you shouldn't do, but you're guided by the things that you should do more of that you enjoy. I don't know if that makes sense. but it <laughs> Yeah, <goes. laughs> completely.
1: And it's always going to be relevant because we, we say all the time, you ha- we have to have food in our life. You know, it's not like if you have a poor relationship with alcohol, you can cut out alcohol from your life. You know, we can live without alcohol. We can't live without food. So we have to find a way to cope. With our relationship with it, so I think that's why we're both so passionate about, you know, doing what we do, getting those podcast episodes out every week. Thank you know, we're very thankful we got the opportunity to write the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love that, and I think it's really cool how you guys sort of essentially your message is like playing off people, how people feel to make them feel better instead of Mm. reducing things and making them feel just crap about the whole aspect of food, which so many things out there do. I mean in America for example Barry like did you find that the sort of dieting way is totally different over here is it more extreme like what's the kind of like contrast there
2: yeah it's so interesting I feel like um here in the UK there's also this like idea that like America's crazy like, <laughs> when comes- I feel
1: like I'm guilty I've said that a few times because I spent quite a lot of time in
2: America over the- and like the I'm not saying yeah, I'm not saying that that's wrong. I think it's like absolutely correct. But I just feel like it's an interesting mentality here in the UK. Um, and it, everyone just thinks that and like, for good reason, like America is definitely crazy when it comes to certain things. But like,
1: ratio wise, like it's on such a different level, you almost can't compare because there's so many of you, there's so many states and countries.
2: And yes, of and course it's very... everything is going to be more extreme. it's very pocketed so you'll get like um different areas of the country that Mm. are more wellness focused and aligned than you know other areas so it's almost like heightened because there's that juxtaposition of like you know LA versus like I don't know somewhere in the deep south it's it's that very polarizing you know comparison but I do think that um what I found actually is that here and I don't know if this is just my opinion so This is not like backed by anything, but here I find that all, a lot of the diets are like more, I don't know, um, there's a, a bigger plant-based vegan community, I think in the UK, like from an Mm -hmm. environmental standpoint, but I think a lot of, you know, diets and disordered eating is kind of behind the guise of, you know, health. Whereas I feel in America, like there, it's much more obvious that you're doing a crash diet, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Like, you know, it's very obvious that you're taking weight loss pills and you're happy to talk about it where I feel like here, there's almost that, um, you know, you have to put it in in a way that like, I'm doing this for my health. Whereas like, I feel like Americans are just like, I'm doing this to lose a hundred (laughs) million pounds in five days. And I'm going to do this, that and the other. I'm going to water fast for a month. And then I'm going to like kidney cleanse. And it's just very obvious where I feel like the practices are, are very much similar, but here in the UK, it's almost like worded in a different way where it's like, this is for the environment and this is for my health. But it really like a lot of it is the same. It's just, um, less in your face, which maybe is just America pick compared yeah, to Yeah, No, I
1: was literally about to say, I just feel like the only places I've spent significant amounts of time in America are New York and LA, but you guys are just so open. Like you you'll talk about anything. Like literally I, whenever I would get in an Uber, I'd be like best friends with the driver at the end of the five minute drive. Like here, you just don't speak to your Uber driver, but you guys are just so open and like willing to give information and here, particularly in London, we're just so conservative and not withdrawn, but kind of like, I don't know what the right word is. But no, we don't we shout It's like, it's
2: like
0: when you're you in the street in London, you're like, oh.
1: Yeah. You know, if someone like says hi just to be friendly in London, you're like, That was weird. Whereas if you were in like LA, you'd be like, Hey, I was anyway. <laughs>
2: This is why my library. boyfriend doesn't like to come out with me in public because I make friends with absolutely <laughs> everyone. He's it's like,
1: good though. It's, I prefer It's so much it better.
2: Way. It's
0: yeah. also so much better for our mental health because especially yeah. in lockdown, people who are living alone, I mean, I live alone. And if I, you know, haven't seen someone or something for a walk and if I go to the shop
2: and no one smiled at me I'm like guys come on this is my interaction for today
1: (laughs) exactly give me something
2: (laughs) yeah a hundred percent um so yeah I wouldn't say that there's I mean obviously there's going to be things I think that the UK and the EU has tighter restrictions when it comes to certain products or things you're allowed to say um Mm. when it comes to labeling I think um America's a much more lacks or the the regulations are a bit less strict so i think certain marketing and manufacturing tactics like there's ways to like cut corners or like loopholes where i do feel like here it is a bit tighter and more closely regulated but i would say i mean a diet's a diet and they exist fundamentally you know the same it's just the way that they're talked about i think is the key yeah. the key difference yeah, I love that. I think it's
0: so true, though, as well, talking about, okay, so how you go about a diet, how you talk about it, how would you guys say then, when you think of like cravings, because people always think, okay, my cravings, are what's taking over my like, mental side with dieting, like, I just suddenly want to have a huge, I don't know, pancake or like a Big Mac or whatever it is. So I mean, in terms of intuitive eating, do you say in that case, like, just if your body really wants it that day, do it? Like, who cares? hundred percent
1: yeah a craving is often a result of that diet mentality thinking anyway because let's say we've told ourselves that we've labeled chocolate bad and that we're not supposed to eat too much chocolate it's not good for us of course your body's going to want it because you you've basically just told yourself you're never allowed it again so that's when that kind of cycle comes in of okay well we'll eat as much as we possibly can now because we want to you know soak up this moment get it all out the way and then get rid of it and then we'll start again tomorrow So you then go, you know, back into restriction mode. And then again, there's research to suggest that after restriction, inevitably a binge is likely to happen. So you're in that kind of binge restrict cycle, constantly feeling guilty, constantly feel like you haven't got any willpower. Whereas with intuitive eating, I like to say to my clients, you know, someone comes to me and says, I think I'm addicted to cake. Like I constantly crave it. I always want cake. I'll say okay so for the next 3 days um can you just eat cake for breakfast lunch and dinner and they're like oh um actually i don't think i'm going to feel very good doing that so it's actually just ch- it's more so the mentality around the food than the actual kind of someone thinking they're craving something or addicted to something because again we know from research that that's not necessarily the case
0: Yeah I love that i'm going to try that with cheese
2: because that's totally <laughs> yeah if you so. eat it
1: enough you'll be sick of it
2: I mean there's so many variations I don't know if I could ever you know <laughs> cheese. if good. I OD on feta then there's halloumi and if I OD on <laughs> yeah, halloumi exactly. there's cheddar so <laughs> um but yeah I I off the back of what Sophie said usually the the cravings come out of this idea that you can no longer have it or you have to restrict to a certain portion mm-hmm. and like I don't think that anyone likes to live inside a box like we don't like to be restricted we don't like rules and mm-hmm. we're always going to try to defy them and it's that guilt of when you defy it it's like oh well um, I've already give, like I've already messed up I might as well just like take this opportunity to like eat as much as I can because I don't know mm-hmm. the next time that I'll be able to have xyz so I think that definitely comes into play but you know I think cravings um they can also be something that your body like needs. Um, So if you're, if, for example, like if you've had a really poor night's sleep, um, you might wake up the next day and you might actually be subconsciously craving a bit more carbs than normal. Um, But actually there's a physiological reason behind that. So maybe your body is trying to produce, sorry, my dog's scratching. Um, Maybe you're trying to produce more serotonin to kind of calm yourself down. Maybe you're, you're lacking energy. So your body's trying to find some quick, quick release energy, which is like the quickest form we can get energy is anything that's like simple sugars. So that might actually be the cake, the biscuit, something like that. Um, So sometimes there's this like physiological need behind it, but I think it's like allowing yourself to just give into that craving and give into that temptation and trust yourself and know that like your body's asking for that, for whatever reason. And that doesn't dictate the rest of your day. So just because maybe you woke up and you're like, I'm really craving cake for breakfast, you know, have the cake for breakfast. You know, that's not something that you crave every single day. (laughs) Um, you know, there's other breakfast foods that you love, um, that aren't cake. And you know, that you can have, you know, whatever you want for lunch and dinner and the cake isn't, doesn't have to dictate what that looks like for the rest of the day, if that makes sense. So I think um, and then the other thing, sorry, I'm like rambling is that sometimes cravings can be emotionally driven. So, you know, I think that there is that kind of stigma of like emotional eating, it's really bad, et cetera. Um, but actually emotionally eating is 100% soothing. Like we all do it. Um, everyone emotionally eats, you know, food brings such pleasure and it's a really great way to kind of connect with other people or, you know, there's certain foods I crave when I miss my parents because it, 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 it's that memory or things that you eat during childhood. Um, That's not a bad thing. Emotional eating can definitely be like a helpful strategy, but it shouldn't be your only, only strategy. So if emotional eating is the only thing you're relying on, that's when maybe unhelpful, you know, unhelpful strategies and mindsets can kind of take over. But I mean, if you're, you're feeling sad one day and you're like, oh my God, I really just want to eat this ice cream. Like it's absolutely fine, but maybe like just have, and I know Sophie talks about this all the time and she has like this like toolkit, but just make sure you have enough in your toolkit to rely on when emotional eating, you know, when you, when you need something else besides emotional eating or Sophie yeah. can probably explain that better. I yeah,
1: love that. it's just, um. Like like Barry said, I think what I say to my clients is emotional eating is like Barry said, totally normal, totally acceptable, totally fine. But after I've like indulged in a box of chocolates to myself because I felt like it. I don't know, maybe I was eating emotionally, maybe I just wanted to eat them all. I'm like, that was great. I just had a whole box of chocolates to myself. That's how I want you to feel after you've kind of indulged, as it were. If it's not making you feel good, then like Barry said, explore other behaviours in that coping kit. Um, that you know, because you you want we're we're using these behaviours to comfort ourselves, right? So the idea is once we've used them, they feel good and they make us feel better afterwards. If they're not making you feel better afterwards, it's not working for you.
0: Yeah, I think, but I love the simplicity in that, and it's so true. If you're coming away from like massive cheese fest like me and not feeling happy which I do I love cheese so much everyone <laughs> <laughs> knows that about me then it's, it's just that simplicity of just being like you say intuitive again and seeing how do I feel after that emotional eating little stint and that's a, mm. a good way to look at it for people so I mean talking about okay I'd love to talk to you guys about inflammation in terms of eating because obviously with stress and we talk about a lot about mm. stress and loss and stuff on this podcast stress can really cause inflammation in the body with all the stress hormones if you're in chronic stress and I think there's a lot of misinformation onto how you can actually help to sort of bring that inflammation down within your body through your own eating I mean the only person I really like look at is you guys and then someone called Dr. Mark Hyman who I'm sure you've heard of who I, I love and he's just a great great author looking at, you know, inflammation, how damaging it is for the body. So, I mean, how do you, what is your sort of like theory on that kind of, you know, how we can damage ourselves with inflammatory eating and how we can sort of decrease that as well?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing. And I think that we always say that like You know, health, there's so much more than just food. And even though you might be eating all the right foods, if you're not taking care of your lifestyle and they're not working together, then you're not going to achieve your kind of health goals. So I think with inflammation, a lot of it is lifestyle factors. So I think a lot of it is stress or sleep or, you know, other things that are causing inflammation. And we definitely know there are a lot of healthy, you know, foods with anti inflammatory properties. But when it comes to foods that are pro-inflammatory, I think that the research is just, it's not conclusive and everyone is so different. So for some people, maybe, um, you know, dairy, they might think that that's inflammatory, but then for someone else, they might not have that response and they can eat dairy and they feel great and they love it. And for them, there's no need to cut it out. So I think that it's really personal, but we do know that certain foods have, you know, anti-inflammatory properties like omega-3s, for example. But I think it's really hard uh, to say that if you eat all these anti-inflammatory foods, you're not going to have inflammation because that's just not how the body works. I was going
1: to say, we have to take into account that genetically we're different and everyone's lifestyle is so different as well. If someone is saying, you know, they've got inflammation in the body, we don't know if that is from, you know, a number of things their diet their stress um you know maybe they've just lost someone or they've had a you know they're not managing their time properly or they're not sleeping or you know their digestion might be off there's so many different things that come into play so like Barry said even when we have research studies suggesting certain outcomes it's really difficult to take that as certain because you know I might not fall into that Barry might not fall into that and this is where we go wrong and why people get so confused is because they will read the headline of a journal article and think, oh, okay, that's new research that's come out. Um, It's it's simple things like, again, we go into more detail in the book, but you can read a statement that like um, omega-3 intake can reduce risk of Alzheimer's. And yes, it can reduce the risk. Some people might see that as oh, okay, I'll just up my omega-3 intake and I won't get Alzheimer's. Or again, flip it, this food has been linked to increased rates of cancer. And again, they might think, oh my God, that food causes cancer. But again, there's so many other factors that come into play, which is why um, Barry and I feel like we do need to stand our ground and they have a voice in this industry to kind of actually break that down for people because we don't we can't expect people to be able to look at that and critically analyze that that's you know that's not what they've been they've learned to do um but yeah that I think i went a bit off track there but that's where the no,
2: confusion comes from <laughs> it's a really good point um which is so true and there's so many conflicting messaging and information. And it's just like applying science to everyday life mm. doesn't always work. Like mm. we aren't in a laboratory, our digestive system, our lifestyle, like we're not in a vacuum. So it's really easy to read a headline, but it's, it's actually so different when we apply it to the individuals and to go back to the inflammation, like you can't see inflammation. Like you can, yeah. it's like, I think that there's this mis misconception of like systemic inflammation versus like having a swollen arm. Mm. Um, So, you know, when we say like systemic inflammation, we're talking about like increased, like um, an inflammatory response. So basically your immune system is on overload because whatever reason, and we can't actually see that. So, you know, I think it's one of those buzzwords that people think about, like, oh my God, I'm so inflamed. But it's like, what does that look like? I think a lot of people confuse bloating with inflammation, which is interesting because we can get into kind of, you know, digestive system and digestive health, which can be affected by literally 1 million trillion mm. things. And again, but
1: bloating is so normal as well.
2: <laughs> exactly. And it could be as simple down to like, you were wearing really tight, high-waisted trousers yeah, well, while yeah, you exactly, were eating. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you were, you know, mindlessly eating. So you were scrolling while you were eating. Um, You were eating really quickly because of that. And you were wearing really tight trousers and all of that in combination has caused you to bloat, not necessarily the food that you're eating. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I'm so inflamed. I'm so bloated. Whatever I ate must have caused that. There's
1: leaving too much time between your meals can actually increase bloating in some people, exactly. (laughs) That's really
2: interesting. So,
1: So,
0: yeah, I, yeah, sometimes I mean, actually, someone I know who says they're always bloated leaves quite a lot of time in between their meals,
1: yeah. Like, some people will just, you know, if I personally, if I were to you know, go from, let's say 12 o'clock when I eat my lunch to like six o'clock at night and not eat anything, I would probably eat a lot more quickly because I'd be hungry and I would definitely get more bloated after that. That's just me personally. But um just on another like personal example, I probably eat a lot more sugar every day than Barry does. I don't think I'm any less healthy than Barry just because my sugar intake's higher. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, I would say my dietary fat is probably higher mm. um but that's that's just like the foods that I we like just, to eat yeah
1: we just eat very differently because I know what makes me feel good Barry's found what makes her feel good and we say all the time that if we were to ever sort diets we'd be so miserable <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that though because that's just like proof is in the pudding so to speak it's like mm. totally unique to you so I mean obviously like the whole dieting world, the nutrition world, the whole other side for it. Like you say, there's that restrictive side. It's um, people don't know what what to do. People are almost like Barry mentioned earlier, using certain things as a sort of cover up for actual, you know, eating disorders Mm. and problems. So, I mean, how have you guys navigated that in terms of, I know, Sophie, you've obviously, I've listened to an episode where you openly and amazingly talked about your own personal um, struggle with an eating disorder was that something that you came to realise through learning or your intuitive side? Or was that like a much longer sort of journey for you?
1: Uh, it was probably a lot longer journey for me. Um, and the reason I waited so long to open up about it is because I never wanted, you know, to come across as that professional who was like, this was my journey and this is what worked for me. So I'm going to tell you what to do. That's that's not the way I function at all. And thank you for listening to the episode um, you, you'll probably hear that I, I didn't really give any advice. I literally just opened up and told my story and gave, you know, some words of wisdom that worked for me. Um, but every eating disorder, every relationship with food is so different. And to a degree, you know, we all kind of struggle with food in one way or another, um, even as health professionals. And it, that's why eating disorders are so difficult to treat because everyone's so different, and we don't have one kind of course of treatment that has successfully you know said, "You know you do this, and you can recover from your eating disorder." Um, but you've got eating disorders and then you've got disordered eating, and I think a lot of people, although unfortunately eating disorder rates are very high, a lot of people do fall into that category of disordered eating, even just you know my mum, who she doesn't, she's never had an eating disorder, but she has diet, she's been yo-yo dieting for a lot of her life. Um, she's in a really great place now, but do you see what I'm trying to say? Like everyone just has such a different relationship with food. So I think why Barry and I are so passionate about just opening up the conversation is so that people feel like there is this safe place where we can just talk about these issues and, it's not us necessarily saying do this and you'll feel great or you'll get better and you'll have a better relationship with food. We literally give you X amount of tools and we want you to go away and pick which ones are going to enhance your well-being. We're very clear about that in the book. We cover so much. And we again have said so often it's a pretty big book with quite a lot of detail in, but if there's just one chapter that stands out and helps you great, like work on that.
0: Yeah. I love that. like you say, I think, just opening up the conversations for people. I think a lot of problems. Um, I mean, particularly in the UK, as like you say, Americans are so wonderful at being more open, just in general, than we are. Yeah. But um, just in terms of you know mental health and um, bodily health and you know eating disorders, all these things. It's just all the stigma that people have been thinking that there is such a stigma for so many years has made people think that they can't even say at the beginning of something I actually have a tiny bit of a problem with this Mm -hmm. so I mean you guys sort of opening up the conversation around just intuitive eating and healthy eating and just being kind to yourselves in that kind of way of bodily message I think is really really wonderful
2: really cool thank you Yeah. And what I was going to add to that is I think like everyone has a health story or like a relationship with food and, you know, it comes down to like what you grew up with or like, even for you, you said that your mom had a great metabolism and that you never really struggled, but like, I'm sure that became part of your identity and you identified with that. So when things started to change, it was like, oh, my identity is changing. Like this is a bit of a Wait, my body
0: is supposed to be amazing. I can eat whatever I want. What the hell's going on here? I was so annoyed. <laughs> like, truly
2: was. Yeah, but it, it's <laughs> it, it's a pro- like it, that's how you grew up and that's part of your environment. And we all have kind of that relationship. And some people have added trauma and some people have added predispositions and different genetic mm. factors. Um, and it, everyone has this kind of defined relationship with food. And to normalize that, I think is really important because I think a lot of people also shy away from talking about it because they don't think what they're doing qualifies as either like disorder or they're not disordered mm. enough to kind of, you know, bring it talk to someone about it and one that can, you know, hold people back from getting treatment that they need but also it can almost like, well, I'll just get like a bit more disordered and then I'll I'll get the treatment because mm-hmm. I'll be more worthy of it if that makes sense. And I think sometimes that that is how people think, unfortunately. So if we can kind of open the conversation before anyone gets to that stage, like that's mission accomplished for us. Um, just you know, normalizing that sometimes we're gonna need a bit of extra help, and there's nothing wrong with that. Sophie and I have both been super honest in our podcast and our you know experience with therapy and stuff like that. Like I've been in therapy on and off my entire life since I think I was six. Like. It's okay. And again, maybe that's super American because my mom was like, it's just good to learn to talk about Mm -hmm. yourself to someone. Yeah. And and it's so healthy to learn to identify emotions and being able to voice it where a lot of people don't learn that. I think it's
0: amazing that you know, to do that at such a young, young age, I think is super cool. And it's something that massively needs to change over here because it's just everyone we're such a culture of shying away from emotions instead of just understanding them and allowing them to be easier for us instead of something we push away, which ends up causing us, you know, more problems or trauma or stress or anxiety, whatever it is. So I think, yeah, just opening up that conversation around emotions, which attach to everything like your eating, your mental health, your wellness thing. It's yeah, really, really, such a good way of looking at it. Totally.
1: Yeah. I was just going to say, just like what Barry was saying, made me think it's, some people as well think that there's this like destination that they're going to get to where like, Oh, they're healthy now and everything's great. Like Barry and I still sit there and binge sometimes. Like there's some days where we are so busy. We miss lunch. Like it's, it's a journey. Like your relationship with food is a journey. And I think that's, again, what we try and get across is that this is no one destination that you're going to reach. Just keep taking each day as it comes, being kind to yourself, doing the best you, you can for yourself. And you know, take away those expectations. And also, again, that comparison of oh, you know, my friend's doing this and she looks great and she seems to be doing great. Why don't I try that? Because you don't know what other people are going through either. You know, that person that you see on social media who is posting her what I eat in a days and exercising five days a week, she might not be that happy behind her screen. You just don't know. and There's no point even going there.
0: Yeah, I love that message. I think it's so, so true and so important. So, I mean, being kind to yourself and like you guys, you know, body, mind and soul sort of comes together to me for wellness. So what are your personal little wellness tips that keep you both on
2: track every day for your own self? That's such a good question. I feel like my days just vary so much these days. I don't even know what I do anymore. Um, I think the main thing is just flexibility. I think allowing yourself flexibility, um, especially in a time like we are now, everything is changing. Our routines are so different than they used to be. And we have to allow ourselves to kind of listen to what we need and be flexible. Like if you, I used to commute to work every day and have quite a different morning routine. And now that I'm home, I have to be able to adapt and listen to what's going to help set me up for, you know, my day, which might be totally different. And what I make for lunch is going to be really different than what I packed for lunch in a lunchbox in the office. And just knowing that you're not, you're not fixed, like you are fluid and you can be dynamic and you can change and have flexibility. Um, and then the other thing for me is just like carving out time to unwind um if I don't do that, that will have like an impact on my stress levels and an impact on my eating down the line. So sometimes it's not always necessarily to do with nutrition, but like nutrition can be a weird outcome somewhere down the line. If you don't take care of yourself in the beginning, I don't know yeah. if that made a lot no, of sense. No, that makes so much
0: sense. I love
2: that. What about you, Sophie?
1: I think just getting that, oh yes, I'm a nutritionist, but I'm very into like the whole picture when it comes to health and well being and we did actually a great podcast episode with a doctor about that overall picture and dabbling in different parts of wellness so you don't have to have the perfect diet not that that even exists like you don't have to be going on your run every single day you can just dabble and you know do a, a bit of movement for 20 minutes every day if that fits in with your schedule just in general maybe make sure you're eating or you know your plant foods or getting your eight hours sleep every night. So for me, it's just the really small things that make up my overall wellness. So sleep is really important to me. I go to bed at the same time every night and wake up at the same time in the morning. I always have breakfast. Doesn't matter how busy I am that day or how early I need to be up. I'll always make time for like a nourishing breakfast because I know what sets me up for the day mentally. Um, Getting out and getting fresh air every day like Barry said, making sure you've got, even if it's just 15 minutes to like take a breath and I don't know, call your mom or play with your dog, whatever it might be. Just, yeah, for me, it's the really small things that make up overall well being. There's nothing huge that I can say, yeah, this is what I do. This is the secret to health and nutrition and well being. It's literally a collection of little things.
0: I love that. And I think it's so true. All the little tiny steps we take eventually mm. make such an impact on us, but we all seem to be under the impression we have to have these yeah we're all looking
1: for that one answer
0: aren't we (laughs) (laughs) which is just crazy um oh guys it's been so wonderful talking to you thank you so much and for those of you who haven't read the forking wellness book you need to go and have a look and you guys can find that on amazon can't you and your website and podcast i'll put in the show notes so people can find you and have a happier outlook on their sort of ideas behind how they can eat and diet in inverted commas (laughs) thank
2: you (laughs) thank you so much it's been such a pleasure to be on your podcast
0: i hope you enjoyed today's episode with the wonderful barry and sophie and have a different insight into how to approach your eating and dieting in inverted commas going forward if you are enjoying the episodes, then do let me know. Tag us on social media, share it on your stories. We would love to hear from you. And I look forward to the next episode where I will be bringing you the amazing Anita from Wally Rituals and talking all about the power of Ayurveda and so much more.